Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let him know, let them know, so that they might arrest him. Let's pray together. Father, it uh, continually amazes me that we can look into your word over and over, even the same passages over and over, And there is a richness and a depth there to your word that can speak not only to us throughout the course of our life on this earth, but to other children of yours uh, around the world in different cultures and different languages. And in every heart that you claim, you can speak your truth through your word. And it's powerful and meaningful and brings about change. We thank you for that miracle, and we pray that you would work your miracle again this morning in each of us. Open our eyes and our hearts to see and understand what you have for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, there was a miracle. Uh, We went to comfort Mary and Martha in their grief over the loss of their brother, and uh, Martha, for some reason, left the house and came back and whispered in Mary's ear. And Mary left the house, and we followed, supposing she was going to the tomb. And she didn't. She went out to the outskirts of the town, and she met this prophet that's been going around, Jesus. And she fell at his feet and started crying. We cried too. And Jesus cried. And he asked where they had laid Lazarus, and we said, come and see, and we all went to the tomb. And then Jesus prayed to God the Father, and then, much to our surprise, 
he asks for the stone to be rolled away from the tomb. <laughs> and we were just like Martha. We said, Lord, it's been four days since he's been in there. There's got to be a bad stink. And Jesus said to Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then, while we're all standing there, he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And he came out! He came out! I saw it! We were there! He came out! It was the weirdest thing. He was all wrapped up. He could hardly move. He was kind of inching along. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Now, what we, we would consider the fascinating part is left out of Scripture. And that is seeing Lazarus alive again. What did he say? Did he talk about what he did the last four days? What did he do? Where was he? Did he hear us while we were weeping for him? Did he appreciate the fact that we were weeping for him? That we were paying him honor? What about the reunion between Lazarus, Mary, and Martha? There's not a word said about that. Were they dancing around? Was that the, the birth of Pentecostalism? We don't know all of those interesting things because the focus of John is to share with us those things that will help us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he's come to bring us salvation. That's what heaven's for, to hear about all the rest of the story. In uh, verse 45, we read that many of the Jews, this is encouraging to me, there have been many that have not uh, given Christ the respect, the honor, the belief that he is due. But as a result of this miracle and God working in their hearts, many of the Jews put their faith in him. And yet some, and here's this important word, but... But some ran off to the Pharisees to tattle on Jesus. To, uh, to tell them yet again of another example of Jesus breaking the law and doing all of these miracles and everything. Uh, he's not following the prescribed religious leaders of the day. He's just a loose cannon is what he is. And here he is going off again doing another miracle. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. Now, this is interesting here. Um, the chief priests were predominantly Sadducees, and Caiaphas, the leading chief priest, was also a Sadducee. And yet uh, an important minority were these Pharisees. And you remember that one of the big differences between them is the Sadducees did not believe in miracles or the life after death, and the Pharisees did. And so they were theological opponents, like the dispensationalists and 
reformed theologians or uh, those who believe in doing good works to earn God's salvation and those who trust in grace alone by faith. These two groups were coming together. They were gathered together in a council against Jesus, the Sanhedrin. It's the only place that John mentions this word. It was uh, the formal religious leader council, kind of like uh, the Senate coming together. There were 70 of these leaders, and the high priest was the 71st member presiding. They gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if they'd only stopped to think what that meant. But it was all about the threat that Jesus posed for them that captured their attention, the threat to them personally. Instead of stopping and thinking about these signs, when the blind man was healed and called before the religious leaders, um, he said that he believed that Jesus was a prophet. How could he be otherwise? How can you do such a great sign like open the eyes of a man born blind if you're not? And the Pharisees could not believe in Jesus then because, of course, he did that sign on the Sabbath and that distracted them completely. But here he raised someone from the dead who'd been in the tomb for four days. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So here, their real concerns come out. It's not the fact that Jesus might be the Messiah and that he is uh, he's blaspheming. If he's not the Messiah, he's blaspheming against God and going against God. It's the fact that if everyone were to believe in him, there might be an uprising, and that would cause the Romans to come down with a strong hammer and put these Jews in their place. Up until this point, the Romans have been kind, if we can use that word. They've been tolerant and have allowed the Jews to be uh, administered to by their religious rulers. And so the Sanhedrin was kind of like the judicial branch, the executive branch, and the legislative branch all combined. And it worked for them uh, as long as the Romans allowed them to do it. But if there was some kind of an uprising, and they'd had a number in the past, their fear was the Romans would come in and squelch it. And they would take away both our place, and this word here is actually being used for the temple. It's used that way in several other passages in Acts when they say the place, and our nation. And so here they're, they're putting forth these religious rulers what appears to be a valid concern that they're looking out for the welfare of their fellow Jews Uh, But the truth of the matter is, is they're looking out for their own self-interest. They would lose their position as religious leaders if the Romans came in and just put an end to Judaism. The irony of all this 
is that in doing what they thought would prevent that from happening, about 40 years later, it happened anyway. And Rome was fed up with the Jews and conquered them, destroyed their temple, burned Jerusalem, and they were deported. And what's interesting about John's gospel is he's the only one that was written after that took place. So the irony in John's gospel is greater than the others because the people that are reading this knew what happened. The religious leaders were so desperate to keep Rome uh, appeased and pacified that they appeased the Romans and gave up their faith. And as a result, in the year 70 A.D., after four years of fighting, the Romans completely destroyed all that they had put their trust in. But one of them, verse 49, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. And so here's uh, the chief Sadducee, uh, and the reputation among the Sadducees were that they were very rough with each other, and this certainly comes across that way. We could translate it into English in a slang and say, You stupid guys, you don't know a darn thing. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Notice in verse 50, you don't understand that it is better for you. And so he's appealing to their self-interest. It's better for you that one man should die for the people. When in actuality, it's better for everyone that one man, Jesus Christ, die for all of the people. That's what's best. And unwittingly, God uses Caiaphas, this wicked religious ruler, to prophesy concerning Christ. And so, he thinks he's got it all under control. Here's an astute politician at work here. He's got it all figured out. What we need to do is give this innocent man uh, to die, and that will appease the Romans. The city will calm down. Everything will be fine. And what he doesn't realize is that uh, things are, are going to be fine, but only because Jesus dies. And people come to Christ. They come to embrace what we saw earlier in this chapter, Uh, life abundant and eternal. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So what the Jews would have thought was meant by this Uh, the children of God scattered abroad would be the Jews being scattered throughout um, all of the Mediterranean. But what Christians understood this to be 
was Jesus calling out his children from all of the nations, including the Gentiles, into one. If you turn back with me just one chapter to John chapter 10 and look at verse 16. John 10, 16, Jesus is talking. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And so Jesus is talking about gathering all of his children that are scattered throughout the world, the Gentiles. And then if you turn with me in the other direction, John 17, this is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. We get to listen in as Jesus speaks with his Father. John 17, verse 20. He's talking to his Father. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There it is. In Christ's view, that's his whole purpose in coming. That's his mission, is that all of God's scattered children may be gathered together in one, to be one, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to share that communion together. So, what we had back in verse 47 was the chief priests and the Pharisees gathering the council, a council of evil to kill Jesus. And then what we have in verse 52 is Jesus by his death gathering into one the children of God so that they might be saved and they might be together with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is so like John to just oppose ideas like this, darkness and light, death and life. Um, we've got this gathering together for evil and this gathering together for good. By the way, back in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees, once enemies, theological enemies, are here gathered together to accomplish God's plan, even though it's their wickedness that he uses. And it's a foretaste of what we're going to see later in John when Herod and Pilate become friends, and they were enemies before, uh, in their treatment of Jesus. And so you have evil gathering its forces together under Uh, Satan's direction to bring about the death of Christ. But what they don't understand, what they don't appreciate, what Caiaphas didn't appreciate, is that through his death, he was going to give life. And so the great irony of this chapter is that Jesus raises Lazarus from death to life so that Jesus will die so that you and I and children of God throughout the world and throughout the history of the world will live. That's just like God. What man intends for evil, he intends 
for good. If you turn with me all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, to the beginning of your Bible, but actually the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. You remember the story of Joseph. And he was one of the last of Jacob's children. Um, He was special in Jacob's sight. He made him a multicolored coat that he wore. And all of his older brothers were jealous of Joseph. Why is he treated special? I mean, we're the ones that bear the all of the labor and have for years, and this this new baby comes along and he gets treated special. So there was a lot of jealousy on the part of Joseph's older brothers. And if you turn with me to Genesis 50 and verse 18... We come to the, um, at this point, we come to Joseph being the leader of all Egypt, second only in command to Pharaoh. And his brothers have come down. He's revealed himself to his brothers. Now his whole family's come down. And finally, the uh, patriarch Jacob has died. And the brothers are afraid that Joseph is going to, Take out his anger on them. And so in verse 18 we see, His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. These same words could have come out of the voice of Christ. You, Caiaphas, you, Sanhedrin, meant it for evil, but God means it for good. You put me to death to save your temple and your nation and your your important jobs that you have. But God means my death to bring about a far greater good than you can imagine. Not only will His chosen people be saved, but all of His children throughout all of time and the world will be saved through my death. You meant it for evil, but God means it for good. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Jesus isn't running away to protect himself. Jesus is sovereign over all of these circumstances, and he is scooting out uh, away from Jerusalem so that when his hour comes... He will be tried, and trial isn't the right word because they've already decided. There's no trial. There's no bringing of evidence. They've already decided that Jesus is guilty. Now the only question is, is how in the world do we get our hands on him and kill him? 
But Jesus goes away so that when his hour comes, then he can lay down his life willingly on his own. We're not sure where Ephraim is, um, and it really doesn't matter. It's somewhere nearby, near enough that Jesus can come in for this final Passover of the Jews. Verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is the third Passover that's mentioned in the Gospel of John. And so we know that Jesus' ministry stretched over two years. We're not exactly sure uh, how long. Uh, in verse, in chapter 5, it, the, um, the festival referred to there may be a fourth um, Passover that's being referred to, so it may be over three years. Um, we're not exactly sure. But here we have Jesus coming uh, to instigate, to initiate a new exodus. We referred to Joseph just a little bit ago. And the people came out of Egypt years after Joseph, 400 years after Joseph, when all of the Jews had been turned into slaves by the Pharaoh. They were brought out under Moses' direction by the mighty hand of God to be released from their bondage. And now Jesus, at this Passover, commemorating that liberation of the Jews, will Himself provide the way. He will be the Passover Lamb that is slain so that all the children of God, not just the Jews, but the children of God that have been elect before the world was formed will be free from bondage to sin, Satan, and death. Hallelujah! We will be free from sin, Satan, and death because of Jesus being our Passover lamb. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It's a treasure full of your truth and of your grace. And we thank you that in your grace you have given us this rich gift. We pray that we might understand your word, but it, it wouldn't just make us intellectually aware. We might be changed by your word, transformed by your word into the image of your Son, that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control would all be exhibited in our lives, that your fruit would be produced in our lives, and we would bear much fruit, that souls would come to Jesus because of the work that you're doing in and through us. This is our prayer, dear Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.